This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening, you're listening to 3RRR. This is Plato's Cave, a film criticism program. My name is Thomas Cordwell, and in the cave tonight, joining me are Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. Good evening to you both. Evening. Evening, Thomas. Here we are, and you may not be aware of this, but Christmas is actually not too far away. So we're going to take a look at one of the only Christmas films being released this uh, this season. We're going to look at the independent American... It's a drama comedy, White Reindeer. It's just begun a season at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. In fact, some of the most interesting films over the next few weeks are getting released at ACME, so we thought we'd take a look at another one. So later this month, um, in fact, uh, just after the Boxing Day films, ACME are releasing several films, including the American-Iranian vampire film A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. I can't help myself. We're looking forward to sinking our teeth into that one. <laughs> and as we'll be dedicating our final show of the year next week to looking back at all the highlights of 2014, we're going to wrap up tonight's show with a bit of a glance at some of the other December releases that we haven't and won't get a chance to discuss in full. So that will be at the very end of the show. But for now, let's have a look at White Reindeer. Yes, let's. Uh, so, writer-director Zach Clark uh, has put together this uh, this curious little Yuletide number uh, with help from his Kickstarter buddies. It's a low-budget affair starring Anne-Margaret Holliman as Suzanne Barrington, aged 31, a real estate agent who's Christmas crazy and living the wasp dream somewhere in the burbs, married to a weatherman, living the dream. Nathan Williams, played by Jeff Barrington. Now, um, oh, have I got that? I don't even know if that's the right way around anymore, actually. I don't know if I've got the actor or the, the, uh, or the performance. Suzanne Barrington's the character. Yeah, that yep. sounds about Barrington's right. are the characters, yes. Actually, the two Barringtons there, that's a clue, isn't it, Suzanne? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, yeah. <laughs> Look, this film made a great impression on me. <laughs> <laughs> If I sounded all jaded, it's because I have spoken about this film once before and I was lukewarm about it then and it hasn't improved in my memory, but I'll get to why. Well, it's um, the only Christmas film, we've got to do it. Oh, gosh, what a cross <laughs> to bear, so to speak. That's more Easter. Anyway, look, she sells property in her immediate neighbourhood, including to George and Paddy, which I did wonder if uh, last time I spoke about this, whether it was a Beatles reference, uh, a Harrison thing. I don't think so. But George is played by Joe Swanberg, one of the auteurs of the moment of the American indie uh, so-called mumblecore scene and George and Paddy are just gosh shucks, a gorgeous pair of um, goofy all-Americans who are almost certainly going to turn out to be uh, up to no good in a sort of sin in, in the suburbs sort of way uh, as they arrive in their matching snowflake jumpers uh, for uh, a house inspection and of course they buy a place just up the road from uh, Suzanne uh, but look, Suzanne's got bigger problems than kooky new neighbours. Um, uh, her husband, the weatherman, is not long for this world owing to a brutal, um, entirely uh, not in the spirit of Christmas murder. And from that point on, she is uh, all adrift. Uh, how will she make sense of Christmas? Um, how will she make sense of the fact that her husband may have been seeing somebody who works at a local strip club and cue all manner of kooky misadventures as she gets to know the uh, stripper in question and and sort of breaks free of her uptight waspish self and does bad things. Um, fun things, but bad things. 
Is that what this film's about? A sort of uh. a, an uptight middle class person who puts way too investment in the mystique of Christmas, having a personal tragedy, and mm. then discovering her true self by befriending people from the other side of the track. I, I, I got to admit, I wasn't too sure what the point of all this this was. Although I, I could see it sort of was touching on on those themes. I mean, yeah. the films could white reindeer, and it's very significant that the woman that her husband has had an affair with is an African American woman mm-hmm. who she gets to know quite well and starts to hang out with. So that's obviously, you know, someone's holding up a cue card saying this is a film where one should discuss issues of race. But I don't know if anything ever really came out other than the fact that one character was white, the other character was black. I'm not too sure how much more in depth we got than that. Yeah, I'd like to say that this was a profound social commentary and maybe even an anti-Christmas film in the vein of, say, Bad Santa, but I think that's a bit of a reach, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it really feels like a film, and it, look, it's only 82 minutes, um, including credits. Um, you know, it, it feels very episodic. It feels like a we've got a premise of a film, you know, a woman who loves Christmas, living a very kind of peaceful suburban lifestyle, has that... that thin veneer of the sort of social community shattered through the death of her husband and, you know, traverses a spiral of sort of sex, drugs and rampant consumerism, really. And, look, I mean, you could could try and and get a sort of social critique out of that, but I think it's a bit of a reach because so much of this narrative is really episodic. This happens and then this happens and then a character sort of announces that something else has happened. But there's not a lot of continuity between those individual scenes, particularly picking up the kind of threads that seem to be opened up in the narrative. And given the film is so short i found that really strange that the film didn't really want to commit to these these the consequences of these various issues and the, the i mean the narrative itself counts down days until christmas um but i actually thought this sh- this film would have probably worked better as say a six-part tv show you know 20 minute six uh, six 20 minute episodes in the vein of a sitcom because this na- natural structure of, of this narrative seemed to be more serialised and, and televisual than it did cinematic. Is that a... I'm not sure if that's a um, value uh, judgment or... No, I definitely see where you're coming from. It, it's weird because there are so many issues raised in this film which I felt weren't followed through. I mean, let, let's check them off. There's certainly the race issue, which is never really developed. There's the idea of being a safe neighbourhood where horrific crime happens. I mean, she says at the start to this, this, this other couple, um, don't worry about the news reports about burglaries. This is, this is a, a safe neighbourhood. And then her husband gets killed. And and, you know, we have a detective investigating that at one point and there's another robbery has occurred by the same people. And, and that that's it. That never, we never get any more than that. And I wasn't expecting narrative closure, but I thought there might be something a bit more thematic about this illusion of, of safety. Yeah, the consumerism thing in there, I thought there would be more of a, a commentary on, on gender. I thought porn was going to be something the film explored. We, we, we see this, this couple having very porny type sex early in the film and I think we're meant to assume that actually indicates that they're a really tight together couple even though it felt really staged and almost played comedically and then we discover the husband also likes to get on the internet and look at very specific types of pornography but again that's that's not explored um, except for a sort of eyes wide shut type sequence where she takes part in an orgy which is just kind of over the top and played for laughs. I think that that's the other thing, tonally the film's inconsistent, a lot of it kind of has that sort of slightly cynical middle you know, middle America comedy and then you've got this couple who are the, the nice sweet golly gosh smiles, Christmas Jumper couple who didn't have these wild sex parties, and it felt like just an easy gag. Yeah, and look, I mean, one of the, the more interesting things in it is that the main character is depressed for almost the entirety of the film, and, and that has some potential. That's something that can be mined. Um, you'd 
ideally for something a little more profound than what emerges here. I mean, I know a lot of us struggle during Christmas. It can be a difficult time for many people for many reasons. You don't have to have anything as dramatic as a murder. But the thing, you, but that's a really, good issue to, a really good issue to explore is that a lot of people do get depressed at Christmas because of everyday family things. That's not explored in this film. She has an extreme event happening, the murder of her husband. So I don't feel like the depression theme was even explored that well. well. A little bit. She becomes a compulsive online shopper. But it's much more interesting when she actually goes out with her new buddies, uh, her new stripper stripper buddies, and <laughs> yeah. goes shoplifting, which is actually kind of fun. And I learned something I didn't know previously about how to go about shoplifting <laughs> yeah, effectively. Was, I don't think that actually works. Does it not? <laughs> no. God damn. Um, yeah, so look, it, it, it is a very odd film tonally. Mm. It, uh, and the, the, the stripper whose name is Autumn, uh, but then her actual name is Fantasia. I mean, that's a pretty peculiar gag there in its own. She's a single mum with a mother who has uh, mental health issues as well, and mm. that's touched on, but then it sort of comes back just to maybe make a point, but it's not, it doesn't really hit home. It's uh, So there's a lot about this that is, it's, they seem to be trying maybe just too much. Yeah, there's so many loose ends. There's, there's more that I hadn't even thought of, and you've just sort of raised some. In fact, the entire narrative is bookended by Hawaii. It opens, the opening shot is a shot of a glorious beach to, at sunset, and we find out that the husband's about to go to a new job, or he's just got this job prior to his you know, brutal murder, um, this job in Hawaii, which they're going to relocate to. And the film ends with an audio track, which is you know sounds from the beach while she's in a different location. So you have this idea of perhaps Hawaii as some sort of fantasy, or you know, Fantasia, maybe that's a kind of a link, but this idea of this uh, the ideal promise, and maybe the film's trying to make a bit of a link there to Christmas, but it's a pretty arch link, and it doesn't really Again, explore that. It's just another kind of thread in a in a bundle of Christmas thread. Well, weirdly, it undercut what I thought the film was doing, which was to say that she invested all this kind of false happiness in the idea of Christmas and the idea of her perfect husband. And, you know, we discover that he wasn't so perfect after all, and maybe she dodged a bullet by not moving to Hawaii with him. But the film then seems to reinforce the idea that, that was still the ultimate dream and she still might get there without him. And... Yeah, I, I, I don't know what the point of all this was. I strangely still enjoyed the film. I was quite happy um, um, watching it. It was, it was a very pleasant way to spend... 82 minutes. 82 yeah. minutes. Um, in fact, I had a very awkward viewing experience. Yeah, I will share this. So <laughs> the, the, the distributors were, were kind enough to, to, to give some of us um, screeners so we could watch this on our own computers or, or at home. And I was stuck at Sydney Airport yesterday with the big rains closing the airport. So I sat down, that's when I watched it on my computer. And I was in an empty terminal when I was starting to watch it, oblivious of what was happening around me. And then we get to the orgy scene which is actually quite full-on and explicit in terms of nudity and what people are doing to each other. And I just had that moment where I was suddenly aware that I was surrounded by people watching over my shoulder as I was watching this on the computer. So... That was really awkward, and I thought that that scene happening, happening to me was probably more funny than what was going on inside the film. That is brilliant. That anecdote alone makes me enjoy the film a little <laughs> bit more. The, in fact, there was the only one consistency, perhaps, in in this narrative is the toilet scenes. There's a number of scenes that take place in toilets, and there are always moments of of crisis or vulnerability, which I thought was an interesting idea. And you know, at least it consistently came back to this idea of bad things happening in the context of people sitting on a toilet. Um, and there's one very key moment that's alluded to it towards the end it's the final toilet scene we get um and again it's another loose thread to be pondered what is the consequences for this character post 
post-final credits. Oh, yeah, again, that's not really explained either. What mm-hmm. happened? Yes, I don't know what you're talking about. And I don't, I've completely forgotten, but never to mind. <laughs> um, look, there's some fun punk rock on the soundtrack and none of it overly familiar or at all familiar. So there's uh, some things about this. There is a freshness to elements of it. It's just such a hodgepodgey, great potpourri of a, a, a weird little American India. And it, it, it's an odd film to pop up now, isn't it? Because it's over a year old as well. Yeah, I guess uh, folks have just been starved for other uh, Yuletide, new Yuletide screening possibilities. Does this mean we're not getting Santa Claus 5 with Tim Allen? Is, is, are they up to 5 yet? Surely. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not too, I'm not overly familiar with that particular franchise, <laughs> uh, Josh. Uh, I'll tell you what, though, seeing Joe jo Swanberg in this uh, recalled one of my favourite films from earlier this year at the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is Happy Christmas. This is a film that uh, Swanberg directed as well as starring, starring in. And, uh, you know, it's, it's got a, quite a big-name cast. Anna Kendrick's in this film as, as well. Uh, and that's available right now on iTunes. You can actually get that as a, you know, digital download legally. And Happy Christmas is sensational. And a lot of the times I was watching White Reindeer thinking... You know, that's how you do a good American indie, like like Happy Christmas, which is, um, again, sort of in the drama, comedy camp. There's no real narrative thrust, and it's about awkwardness between family members. But there's a lot more warmth. I think it's played a lot more sincerely. And it's got Swanberg's own baby appears in this film as one of the funniest actors, impro actors I've ever seen. Some of the, the footage they get of this baby's antics with the actor's Obviously, cracking up in real life on camera is absolutely delightful. There, that's my Christmas tip. Go to iTunes and, and, and buy or rent yourself a copy of Happy Christmas. Three, triple, ah. Oh. This is Plato's Cave. We're going to talk about another film now that's screening later in the month at the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This is... You know, you should never say silly things like instant cult classic, but I reckon this film may be a contender for such a silly title. We're talking about A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Josh, I believe you rather like this film. Yeah, I uh, dare say, having only seen this film once, I'll be watching this, I think, quite regularly in the coming years. It's directed by Anna Lily Amepur, who was an English-born filmmaker but now resides in L.A., and she's described as an American-Iranian. And, in fact, this film itself... is being billed as the first Iranian vampire western, and it reminded me a lot of a 1990s black-and-white Jim Jarmusch vampire film that he never made because he waited until this year to make Only Lovers Left Alive. So if that's not a selling point on its own right, I'm not sure what is. The film is incredibly sexy, it's subversive, it has a wonderful sense of atmosphere. Um, The opening shot, we get this character, Arash, who's dressed a bit like a kind of 50s James Dean, and we see him smoking next to a kind of dilapidated building, then he dives behind the building and emerges with a pussycat, (laughs) and he sort of walks off into his wonderful 50s style sort of retro car and we we realize that he's living not only in a kind of a pretty tough neighborhood because he his car passes by um a bridge or an underneath which is just a series of of corpses and we kind of you know the filmmaker sets the scene right away that this is a town the fictional town of bad city in which the sort of spectre of death looms large everywhere and the real sort of sense of supernatural death here comes in the form of the girl as she's referred to played by Sheila Vand she's a, a kador clad vampire who sort of stalks this the bad city at night and has a wonderful confrontation at one point with a rush and they start to form a romantic friendship let's say it certainly develops over the course of the narrative 
I absolutely love this film. <laughs> you know, for, for the reasons I mentioned already, um, it's incredibly sexy. It's wonderfully subversive in terms of the way in which it takes the generic conventions of the vampire film and the Western. But in the context of, particularly given that this is um, the language of this film is Farsi, and the, and the kind of cultural connotations of, of the vamp character wearing a kador and stalking misogynist men. I mean, I think this film, politically, this film is, is really quite stark in terms of some of its um, subversiveness. subversiveness across gender and cultural lines um, but apart from that I, I just think one of the things that struck me straight away and this is one of those tricks that I think only talented filmmakers can really do is to set something in a, in a, a world or a setting that's a skewed reality but has such a wonderfully coherent sense of uh, realism to it and logic to it that I completely bought the setting and the characters even though this is a film working in those generic conventions but the other key thing is without that smug self-reflexivity this is not a film that's telling the audience look how clever I'm being look where I'm referencing this scene or this film it, it's just all part of this sort of wonderfully coherent narrative yeah you, I think you, you, you've nailed it you, you believe the world of this film it's what nerds call uh, world building sorry it's what it's what <laughs> it's what fans of certain genres call world building where you establish the kind of the, the the dynamics and boundaries of this fictional universe and you get completely absorbed into it. I adore this film as well. That there's a real kind of it's making all of us feel old, but there's a real looking back to the 90s now. There's a revival of 90s culture and that a- aesthetic. And whenever you do that, there is the danger, I suppose, of doing something that's more... It's a bit more self-aware or it's parody or it just doesn't quite get it right. Where This does feel like a lost film from the mid-90s. I mean, Jim Jarmusch is clearly an influence and it's definitely the best film that he hasn't made that feels like he made it. I mean, I've never seen anybody nail the sensibility of that like this film does. But not just Jamush, also directors like Hal Hartley. There's a real Hal Hartley vibe. The, 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 the lead female actor who plays the vampire even wears that kind of black and white stripy top that a lot of Hal Hartley characters would wear and a similar kind of bobbed haircut. Um, and I love those shots. of What, what type of um, headdressing is she wearing? She's wearing a kador, so it's the, it's the top of the headpiece that falls down in a kind of a full-length cape. A and it looks like a cape. I mean, it looks like a vampiric cape. And there's a scene where she gets a skateboard and she just skates through the city in this stripy kind of 90s chic top with the with the, with the cape. And it looks absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's a few little David Lynchian kind of nods in that. There's an industrial landscape feel to that. You've got those heavy oil mining uh, devices on the horizon we often see, which is a really strong visual motif that was in Blue Velvet. And there's one more director I'm, I'm, I'm forgetting Vim Vendors Vim Vendors thank you actually that's one you suggested to me um, before I saw the film so that's why it was in my mind but yeah bang on just that kind of very cool urban feel to it um, and yeah and I think I mean stylistically this is so gorgeous but I think there is a lot of subversive elements I mean even the title alone A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night sets up the kind of cliched narrative of so many horror films which is a girl by herself gets attacked where this is the exact opposite I keep referencing Buffy the Vampire Slayer lately as well, but Buffy did something similar. Buffy opens with the, the character who... You th- the very first episode ever of this series opens with a character who you think is going to be the victim turning around, becoming the vampire and killing her prey. And then the lead character is the blonde cheerleader. I mean, very much subversing, sub- subverting the tropes. Also a, a 90s product, I suppose. So... I don't know, for a film that is so kind of buried in nostalgia and pastiche, it also feels so fresh, original and vibrant. I just 
adored this goddamn film as well. Yeah, look, it's a gorgeous thing to behold. And, uh, yeah, again, all of these directors that you both uh, mentioned, that, that these particular... Um, some of them, you could say, really hit their stride in the 90s, that this deadpan sensibility. That's, I also think of Karazmaki, who had a real uh, Jim Jarmusch thing going on too, especially with the Leningrad Cowboys, where there was this culture. Yeah, and there's a bit flat. of a love affair between those two as well yeah, in real life. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So here, rather than a, a Finnish... Artistic love American, affair. Yes. Well, who's, <laughs> who knows? Who, well, we don't yeah, know. You know. heard it here first, <laughs> Uh, yeah, this, this very peculiar Iranian-American hybrid, it, it does work. You'd think on paper it oughtn't, but it, it absolutely does. I guess everyone's uh, taken this on with the utmost conviction. And they've thrown in another couple of strands to the the narrative and, and thematics of this film too. And a key one, which has come up in vampire films before too, is that of addiction. So the, the protagonist's father here is uh, a heroin addict who's in thrall to the baddie we meet early on, uh, who's you know, a really fascinating looking baddie. I've not actually quite seen a baddie with his particular sort of, uh, particularly uh, Arabic, Arabic um, well, they're sort of tattoos, but they don't quite look like tattoos either. Markings mm. of some sort, anyway. And uh, it, his villainy is is interesting because it's, it's it's quite it's a bit over, overplayed, but camp, but also quite just plain peculiar. You, you know he's bad before you see him necessarily do anything bad. Um, but there's this little backstory you get to piece together that the, the protagonist's mother has passed on, father has re- reduced to some sort of a wreck, was easily made a junkie courtesy of the, the baddie who has in turn uh, covets the, the beautiful convertible. Was it a convertible? Yes. yes it was a, it's, yeah, this beautiful red, I don't know what, what model it is, but it's you know, an exquisite vehicle. Well, it's a black and white film, so I'm not too sure how you know the colour either. <laughs> no, but it's red in you, my memory. Yeah. The red <laughs> red makes sense to me as well, yep. <laughs> it was totally red. It just was, all right? Just run with it. And, um, uh, yeah, and I, I mean, I, the... Abel Ferrara film from the 90s as well. It's, it's actually called The Addiction, isn't it? Because yes, it is, yes. Yeah, uh, that, that just triggered that little sort of memory as well, watching mm. this. And the the part that just popular music has to play in this, uh, that when we first sort of see her in her own domestic space, she's uh, fairly blankly listening to pop tunes. There are posters all over her, uh, is it her bedroom or lounge or just everything at one sort of, it's a bedsit maybe in a weird American context somehow and there's a, a poster on the wall it looks remarkably like madonna but it isn't madonna and i was staring at it all the time trying to figure out who on earth is that and and what is the significance josh yeah that thing struck me as well because the first time we saw it see those posters in the background there's the really iconic images there's the madonna picture the close-up on her face her, bla- her face it's a black and white well of course it's a black and white image but it is in the real oh, world too it? um from the debut album madonna madonna uh, and there's also the bg's cover and i think it's michael jackson's off the the wall you know that one where he's reclining and the first time i saw them I, I swore that they were the actual posters but when we come back to that setting we get those posters maybe in a sharper focus and the madonna one actually says margaret yeah. and the face is completely changed and same with the michael jackson one and i thought has she just changed the mise-en-scene the entire background of that scene and what's the significance and it just happened to be thinking while i, I was noticing that that this is a clever film that reinterprets genre in such a way and plays off expectations and here 
we have the background doing the exact same thing. Like the background is physically evolving or doing something quite different to our expectations of what we're actually seeing. I thought that was so clever. And we get that mirroring in, in the background in another key scene because the, the bad guy you mentioned has the word sex tattooed across his throat. Ah, yes. And there's another mm-hmm. scene later, and it's an external shot, where we see sex t- um, graffitied prominently over across the wall. So we get this kind of clever mirroring. And I think the, the whole idea of sex in an Iranian film too is clearly a very sort of provocative statement. Well, yes, we'll talk about that. Uh, But uh, the other mirroring I wanted to mention without giving anything away is I think there's only one significantly violent scene in this film. The rest is implied or it's just a bit of menace. But there is one very violent film and it beautifully mirrors something the victim has done. I mean, it borders on being a little bit too literal, but it's so cool and stylish and effective. I just was like, no, I'm I'm down with that. You can be as literal as you like. That's absolutely absolutely gorgeous. Um, uh, uh, but yeah, this um, oh, and quickly the soundtrack. I just had a look up. Um, the soundtrack's getting released next year in February, that, which is why I don't have any of it tonight. But I think once I get my hands on it, I'll be playing it to death on the show next year because the soundtrack to this film is, is stunning and just just that fusion of American pop culture and Iranian culture that comes together, which is what this whole film really is. I mean, it's such an American film in in so many ways. It's certainly taking its cues from all these major American filmmakers, and yet I think this has a really distinctive Iranian sensibility. And in fact, I think we all had this experience watching this, it being sold to us as an Iranian film, getting about half an hour into this film, thinking how the hell was this made in Iran? Um, and it made a lot of sense afterwards, discovering actually they're all Iranian Americans, they're all expats, and they made this film in America. But it does kind of have that sensibility of, 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 of Iranian cinema, that slightly kind of social realist feel, or, or awareness of, of space and the way kind of characters from different classes are kind of reflected by the space that they occupy or, or, or dominate or are dominated by and yet so stylishly like a, 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 a hip 90s indie film as well it's a remarkable achievement. Well yes, certain social mores early on he's uh, in the, the, is it the bedroom of uh, a woman, he's uh, the gardener and he's very aware that he ought uh, according to uh, social customs, be there. He's mm. in a, a taboo space and, and has to have that little conversation with her, get her off the phone a moment to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly comfortable here. He's a good boy. That, that was one of the things that immediately you know, he's pinned. He's, he's a, good, a good citizen. I mean, we'll learn that he may be a little corruptible over time as well. But, um, well, that's interesting as yeah, well. Is, he's not, yeah. He doesn't remain the flawed, likeable hero. I mean, he, he does some very questionable things. Well, someone done him wrong and... Yeah. Uh, and one other element I think is very interesting of the whole cultural mix here is is that soundtrack in that there's a lot of um, something that uh, when it was first uh, introduced to the Western, and I speak of sort of Morricone-esque soundtracks, it was thought to be a very peculiar thing and uh, very much uh, uh, an act of uh, hybridization, introducing the sort of avant-garde uh, Morricone uh, compositions to those early Clint Eastwood, uh, Sergio Leone mm. westerns. And mm. here, that similar sorts of soundtracks uh, is uh, used quite often here when there aren't pop tunes on. There's just these real, this real Tex-Mex thing, which just further confuses things, but also illuminates them at the same time in a way because it makes the cultural mix that bit more. 
uh, heady, I think, but it also there's so much signified in the sound of a little bit of slide guitar and come to, to vendors in Paris, Texas there, or, or but also just uh, that, that um, sort of tumbleweedy atmosphere it, it evokes. Um, it's just it's a, it's a great shorthand and it works really effectively in this film too. Yeah, that wonderful scene. I mean, this is the other thing about the use of uh, Amy Poor's use of the soundtrack in this is that she's happy to keep the entire song and not just play it in, in you know, you know slight small grabs and, and as if to sort of punctuate key moments. There's that wonderful single take where we have a, a song turns on, I think a, a rush turns a mirror ball and starts spinning a mirror ball and then walks into frame from the, from the left and the camera just stays still and I got chills at that moment. <laughs> it was one of those ones where the music and the style and the mood and the way in which she'd built up to that moment was just executed with a kind of sublime amount of skill and I just thought I am in love with this film. You know when you get, you're halfway through a film and you're already already com- sort of completely enamoured by it mm. and that was the moment I think beyond the moments before it that I was I completely fell in love with this film. The other thing I wanted to mention quickly is the performance of Masuka, the cat in this film. Oh, it's been a good year for cinematic Puskats. Yep. With the Inside Lewin Davis, um, the, the last Hunger Games film. Nice, yep. It had some great cat work and the cat in this is magnificent. Particularly in that the final shot. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to say what the final shot is, but the final <laughs> shot of this film. Look, I, I'm, I'm going to say it. This, this is my favourite final shot of any film this year. There you go. Oh, hello. Well, yeah, the cat has a great sense of composition, <laughs> let's say. Really, he knows, he knows how to be framed in a scene, knows doesn't it? Seriously knows where the camera is. He knows yeah. when to look at the camera and when to look slightly off camera. Yeah. It's a fantastic pussycat. Just, just talking about playing songs in full, you know what other 90s director was significant for doing that, which you, who we haven't mentioned, it is Quentin Tarantino. And I reckon there's even a few echoes of, of his work and influence in this film as well. I mean, I think it's very hard to make a 90s-esque film. And Rod- um, Rodriguez. Uh, yes, the yeah. other one. Yeah, the other one. The yeah. one who used to make good films. And yeah. Was it Richard or Robert? I've gone blank. Robert. 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 And, and, yeah, and, and El Mariachi yes, and Desperado were his two really good films from the Tex-Mex 90s. And that thing there, of course, you know, that was very yep. key. So, yeah, definitely. So, oh, I wrote this title down. So, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. It just ticks every box. I think you can hear our love for it pouring out this evening on Plato's Cave. You're going to have to wait until the 27th of December, though, when that screens at Acme, and, and you're going to want to see that on the big screen with the beautiful sound design whirling around your head as you're absorbed into this Iranian vampire western film. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're going to use the remaining time on tonight's show just to look at some of the other December releases that we're not going to uh, cover in full. So a number of big Boxing Day releases. Um, I have to say at the outset, not all that excited about December this year in, in the cinemas. There's, there's sort of a lot of films we've all collectively decided we're not going to bother with. We're certainly not going to see the new Ridley Scott film. Um, there's a sequel to Horrible Bosses. There's a sequel to The Hobbit or The Hobbit Part 3. I think just, we're very collectively shrugging our shoulders at this one, at these ones. But let's look at some of the films we have been interested in that we haven't covered in full. Suresh, you want to talk about The Congress, which wow. is a film I saw about two years ago, so I'm struggling to remember it. Yeah, likewise. I mean, I just think it's worth bringing it to folks' attention. Not least, it's already uh, in cinemas, but just because it is a quite singular sort of a film, mm. uh, a very 
Um, well, and that has a, a lot. To, that's interesting to say. I think about uh, the cult of celebrity and uh, especially women in Hollywood and uh, the quest to keep them forever young, um, never to be employed again once they hit say thirty or so. Uh, for who wants to see that? Apparently, you know that's a, a thing. Uh, it, it's a an adaptation of a, a sci-fi novel by the same author who uh, gave us Solaris, a Stanislav Lem. And uh, Robin Wright, uh, the ever-delightful all-too-little-seen Robin Wright, plays herself, or a version thereof, who is destined to become uh, property. Her likeness, at least, is to become property of a, a, a studio, much as is the, the vogue of the time. This is the not-all-that-distant future, perhaps. And uh, from which point on, the studio can do with her likeness whatever they please, which then leads ultimately to her becoming a sort of a chemical formula whereby the audience generally can do whatever they please, having ingested the uh, the spirit or at least the, the likeness of any of their favourite performers captured forever young. Um, and uh, so this, this weird mix of um, live action and then animation, which uh, assumes extremely psychedelic dimensions uh, for the, the whole second half of the film which is just extremely overwhelming in a um, lurid Fleischer Brothers sort of tribute uh, like Betty Boop on acid very much as, as if Jodorowsky had somehow got in there and and messed with it all and it's, it's pretty fascinating if possibly even ultimately I find a little overstimulating it's just a bit much that kind of reflects my memory of it as well. I, I really liked it, and I'm really glad I saw it. But it's it's overwhelming, and it, yeah. it's, it, it's epic, and it it almost feels like a dream you've had rather than an actual film. It, it's quite a bizarre experience. Yeah, I saw it two years ago as well, so I'm a little foggy on the kind of key details. But I remember overall appreciating particularly aspects of it. I think I loved the animation sequences in those sections of the film, but I was a little unsure whether the live-action sort of setup was meant to be erotic and over the top and very much sort of steeped in a kind of soap opera style That's aesthetic right, and melodrama yeah. or whether that was just a, a kind of a fault with the film. I couldn't quite tell where the director Ari Folman, who did uh, Waltz with Bashir which I really thought was a great film yeah. um, uh, where he was sort of trying to position us in relation to those stylistic changes. But look a really fascinating film and you're right, we don't see enough of, of Robin Wright, at least on, on the big screen by her very brief appearance in A Most Wanted Man, a film I'm not sure we covered on this No, station. we missed it. It came out during the festival so we, I still haven't seen it. It's the big layering omission this year of the films I want. I was looking forward to and wanting to see that I haven't caught up with yet. Yeah, I was probably in the minority. I actually really dug it. Um, but look, I think it's worth giving a shout out to her performance in House of, House of Cards, the remake, the Netflix remake. What is it? Netflix, I think it is, with it's Kevin a, yeah, Spacey, yeah. the remake of the UK political show, which is fantastic. If people haven't gotten on board with that, there's two seasons and a few episodes in. I think to the third. Wait, there you go. Don't don't see films this summer. <laughs> Just binge watch television no it's it's getting like that isn't it i think we're all we're all getting that way should we just do should we play those cave on tv next year sure it's tempting sometimes isn't it um speaking of films that are out in the cinema at the moment i, I wouldn't mind giving a bit of a shout out to uh, an intriguing italian film called human capital it's got a very small release it has done the festival circuit it's one of these films that's um in four different chapters and the first three chapters of the film as such are told from a different perspective of the character in in the film and and so it, it, it all kind of revolves around a hit and run accident where a guy a guy who just works in a catering firm gets knocked off his bike by someone driving a four-wheel drive and we, we know who owns a four-wheel drive is the wealth is the son of a wealthy family but there's a lot of doubt about who actually drove it um the first two chapters especially the first one focuses on 
the girlfriend of the boy, the girlfriend's father, who's sort of a middle-class social climber who gets himself into a horrible debt situation. And the second chapter focuses on the boy's uh, uh, mother who tries to restore a, a theatre that's about to be turned into apartment block. It, it was very topical watching it in, in, in light of what's happened at the palace recently, actually. And her husband has sort of given her some money to do that as a kind of, there you go, love, go and enjoy yourself. Oh, by the way, the business is doing badly. I'd like the theatre back now to turn it into apartments. Um, you know, the, the third and fourth chapter is then more piecing it all together, which is interesting, but I quite enjoyed the first two chapters especially, which just gave you a lot of insight into what's going on, I think, in Italian society, not too different from other parts in the world, where there's a real growing divide between the rich and the poor, and... Um, this idea of sort of social climbing is, is quite destructive and it's forcing people into making reckless economic choices and presenting sides themselves that aren't, aren't true to who they are. So it's sort of this film has got the veneer of a whodunit, who, who hit the guy on the bike, but it's more really fascinating social commentary. Um, and, yeah, I think it's, it's probably... I haven't seen a really strong Italian film since The Great Beauty from the very start of this year. And, you know, I, I do enjoy Italian cinema. So the human capital... Not the human capital. Human capital is, is worth hunting it down. Now, have you seen any other films mm. in December? No, look, I mean, the only thing I, I'm, occurs to me to give a shout-out to is that the Melbourne Cinematheque has its final screenings for the year this Wednesday, and they just had one of the films of the year last week as part of their Jacques Becker season, their final season for the year, this extraordinary prison escape drama, The Hole, which I know, Josh, you felt it as I did, that it was just nothing short of miraculously good. Uh, that sort of cinephile kick we get once in a, a blue moon where a film is just that good so I naturally have extremely high and probably unrealisable expectations of the two remaining films of the season on this Wednesday which are of a completely different ilk uh, altogether but um, still but that's, uh, the, that's the cinematic. I, I've also seen um, Big Hero 6 which is I, I spoke about this at length on the Breakfasters last Thursday so I won't go into it too much here but I adored it it's a new Disney film I think Disney have just been going from strength to strength over the past few, few years probably because they poached all the Pixar people. But um, I, 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 think deep, I think Big Hero 6 is basically Terminator 2 Judgment Day for kids. I, I think that they're a very similar character dynamic in that you've got a young boy who has to teach uh, a robot to to kind of transcend its programming to be more human-like. And in the end, the robot, of course, teaches the boy more lessons about humanity. And, and the villain in Big Hero 6 are these little nanobot kind of creatures so they, they effectively like a large shape-shifting robot so i can't wait to see it I was... so I'm, I'm looking at you josh saying I, i'm so sad you you missed the media screening that happened on the weekend I because am... i think you would love this film i'm devastated this is that's high on my in fact it, it probably is number one on my boxing day to see list um the trailer alone which i've been watching for probably nine a year now mm. um is I, I find myself bursting into kind of abject laughter and, and kind of tears of joy it's such a kind of joyous and it, you know this idea of the the japanese um, is it what do they call it? Tokyo, New Tokyo, San Francisco, uh, or San Fran, to- San Franokyo, or right? It's okay. a fusion of San Francisco and Tokyo, which yep. sold. There you go. Yep, which is really fun, and it, it's a really ethnically diverse cast. There's you know there's more than one female character. Um, there's two, but that's actually quite a, that, that, that's actually quite a big deal to have two female characters in the ensemble of, of six. That, that, that it, it's already it's a step ahead of the Lego Movie and Guardians of the Galaxy, which we both really like. But said, you know, it's again I've, I, I, I talk about this constantly but the smurfette syndrome yep. of you know there's always there's only ever 
one female character of these ensemble groups, and they're defined as being the girl. And I think Big Hero 6 takes a step to getting away from that and getting a little bit more sophisticated, because the female characters are their own very developed characters. It's a really good ensemble the, in this The voice this cast, script. Thomas, who's... Oh, don't ask me that. Um, <laughs> some famous people and some not-so-famous yeah. people. No, no, nobody in lead roles of real significance. There is one or two voice casts in there who I know is somebody worth noting, but I'm, I'm terrible well, with that all, sort of all thing. All the better for it, because it's incredibly distracting, I it's find. It's not but distracting, me- yeah. yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that, that org as well. What else? Oh, Mr. Turner, the Mike Lee film. I was really looking forward to this, I, um, and I did manage to catch it a few nights ago, and was kind of underwhelmed. Um, I'm a bit sad Tara couldn't join us tonight because I think she felt the the, the same the same way. And um, you, you know, I, I quite like most Mike Lee films, but and I think. Mr. Turner does some splendid things. It, 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 it tries to contrast the majesty of his painting to the very everyday grottiness and ordinariness of, of his life. It's set over the last sort of two decades, I think, of his life. And the film captures visually some of the... The, the style of his paintings and these beautiful shots that do make the heart soar and there's the, the sort of moments as well where his paintings are on display at the Royal Academy of Arts, these beautiful sequences where he sort of storms through and you see all the other artists bickering about why is my painting next to that guy or why is my painting in the anteroom and all the politics of the art world and that stuff's great but otherwise it's a really episodic film and since since sort of seeing it, I've done a bit of research onto who Turner. You know, this is J. M. W. Turner, the, the great English Romantic landscape painter. I read a bit about his life, and then a lot of the scenes in the film made sense. But I kind of resented the fact that going in cold, I didn't understand the point of a lot of it. I, I've since researched and found out the point, but I think it could have done with a bit more context. And it does go on and on. And Timothy Spall. Just, I, I think it's a very intense performance, but he just kind of grunts and wheezes and snarls for this entire film. He's just like a big angry hamster, and uh, he is a bit like a big angry hamster. Though, yeah, it's he? really on the max. And then you've got these weird affected performances from some characters. I mean, there's silly voice acting in parts of this film. I don't quite get it. I don't quite get all the love for it either. I found this uh, two and a half hours too a little bit hard work. You know, it's a bad sign where you start saying, "Come on, hurry up and die." I know the film. <laughs> Film's going to end this way. Hurry up. Um, speaking of biopics, British biopics at that, um, have either of you seen The Imitation Game? I think that's another uh, Boxing Day release. That's a New Year's Day New release. New Year's Day, sorry. Yes, I have. Do you want to wrap it on about that too? Well, maybe maybe a mention because there's been some well some pre-discussion and and pre-critical buzz um, in terms of the way in which the Benedict Cumberbatch character's sexuality is represented on screen. He's he's Alan is it Turing? Turing. Turing. Yeah, Turing. The guy who was basically responsible for the the development of the computer, I believe. The Enigma. The Enigma. Yeah. yeah. Well, the the, the film very much overtly credits him as creating the Enigma machine, which bust which which decoded what the Nazis you know the Nazi signals to each other, and this effectively direct helped England win the war. Without his work, they may not have won. And it also credits him as saying he therefore eventually, uh, he therefore essentially invented the computer. And yet his sexuality is brought up and discussed. I mean, it was quite horrible what happened to the man in real life. Some, you know, he then had to go into hiding to conceal his homosexuality because it was illegal, and then he was put on trial for it. And and the, the, I mean, you can read about yourself if you want, or you can see the film to find out what happens. And it, it was really awful what happened to him. And it's only in the past five or six years that he was officially pardoned. Um, you know, this, this man is, is, is a hero of the world, and he was... You know, it, it is abysmal the way he was treated. And so I think a lot of the criticism of the film 
that has come so far is that it does sort of sanitise and sort of maybe package it all up in a kind of neat feel-good film. And I think it does do that to an extent. It feels a little bit like um, it's going to be this year's The King's Speech. Right. It's that kind of easy, digestible, good, solid storytelling about an historical event. You know, take your mum to see it at Baldwin Cinema. It's that kind of film, which I... I I think it's fine, and I quite enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed uh, the imitation game. And even though we don't see any overt expressions of his sexuality, you know, we, we don't see him making out with other men, there's no sex scenes, it's not that kind of film. We don't see any heterosexual characters doing it either, to, to, my, to my knowledge. I mean, his sexuality is discussed and openly talked about in the film as a theme. I'm not convinced that the fact that we didn't see him actually acting out his sexuality is therefore a fault of the film. I, I, I think someone's sexual identity doesn't have to be reduced to a physical act yep. of, of intimacy. So I'm, I think some of the criticism has been a little reactionary and unfair. I had to, heard tell of some criticism that uh, the, the, there might have been some liberties taken with uh, how his um, sexuality was kept... Uh, secret that he may that that there might be a little bit of um, um, revisionist uh, historianism uh, in the film, and that there, maybe there were suggestions that he was blackmailed at some point to keep it quiet, and that might be contrary to actual events. But okay. um, I don't know; I haven't seen well, the film. That wouldn't surprise me, and I'm sure it takes all sorts of historical liberties as well. I mean, all these films do. Uh, this is oh, we're about to end the show. This is this is such a big conversation. Just open Pandora's yeah. box. I mean, I, I fundamentally believe, uh, unless it's really recent history or it's about people who are still alive or people who are close to them who are still alive, I, I don't think film necessarily has the duty to be historically correct. I, I unless think... you're Exodus God and Kings, and you think uh, a Persian can be made by a white man with eyeliner. See, and there's the other extreme, isn't it? We have open Pandora's box. This Oops. idea of film and art representing history accurate. I mean, history books don't reflect history accurately. Yeah, okay, difficult conversation. Let's Save let, it for another time. Let's do a special next year, because next week on Plato's Cave, we're going to look at our highlights of 2014. So, we, 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 hopefully Tara will be joining us. Um, it'll be myself, Thomas Cordell, with you, Josh Nelson, and you, Cerise Howard. We'll be back here on Plato's Cave. Uh, just quickly, White Reindeer is screening at the Australian Centre of the Moving Image right now. And a girl walks home at night begins at Acme also on the 27th of December. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.